Section 5 of Chapter 17 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 17, Section 5. Sherlock took the oaths and speedily published, in justification of his conduct, a pamphlet entitled The Case of Allegiance to Sovereign Powers Stated. The sensation produced by this work was immense. Dryden's Hind and Panther had not raised so great an uproar. Halifax's letter to a dissenter had not called forth so many answers. The replies to the doctor, the vindications of the doctor, the pasquinades on the doctor, would fill a library. The clamour redoubled when it was known that the convert had not only been reappointed master of the temple, but had accepted the deanery of St. Paul's which had become vacant in consequence of the deprivation of Sancroft and the promotion of Tilliston. The rage of the non-jurors amounted almost to frenzy. Was it not enough, they asked, to desert the true and pure church, in this her hour of sorrow and peril, without also slandering her? It was easy to understand why a greedy, cowardly hypocrite should refuse to take the oath to the usurper, as long as it seemed probable that the rightful king would be restored, and should make haste to swear after the Battle of the Boyne. Such tergiversation in times of civil discord was nothing new. What was new was that the turncoat should try to throw his own guilt and shame on the Church of England and should proclaim that she had taught him to turn against the weak who were in the right, and to cringe to the powerful who were in the wrong. Had such indeed been her doctrine or her practice in evil days? Had she abandoned her royal martyr in the prison or on the scaffold? Had she enjoined her children to pay obedience to the rump or to the protector? Yet was the government of the rump or the protector less entitled to be called a settled government than the government of William and Mary? Had not the Battle of Westetter been as great a blow to the hopes of the House of Stuart as the Battle of Boyne? Had not chances of a restoration seemed as small in 1657 as they could seem to any judicious man in 1691? In spite of invectives and sarcasms, however, there was Overall's treatise. There was the approving voices of the two convocations, and it was much easier to rail at Sherlock than to explain away either the treatise or the votes. One writer maintained that by a thoroughly settled government must have been meant a government of which the title was uncontested. Thus, he said, the government of the United Provinces became a settled government when it was recognised by Spain, and but for that recognition would never have been a settled government to the end of time. Another casuist, somewhat less austere, pronounced that a government wrongful in its origin might become a settled government after the lapse of a century. On the 13th of February, 1789, therefore, and not a day earlier, Englishmen would be at liberty to swear allegiance to a government sprung from the Revolution. The history of the chosen people was ransacked for precedence. Was Eglon's a settled government when he had stabbed him? Was Joran's a settled government when Jehu shot him? But the leading case was that of Athaliah. It was indeed a case which furnished the malcontents with many happy and pungent allusions. A kingdom treacherously seized by a usurper near in blood to the throne. 
the rightful prince long dispossessed, a part of the sacerdotal order true through many disastrous years to the royal house, a counter-revolution at length effected by the high priest at the head of the Levites. Who, it was asked, would dare to blame the heroic pontiff who had restored the heir of David? Yet was not the government of Athaliah as firmly settled as that of the Prince of Orange? Hundreds of pages written at this time about the rights of Joash and the bold enterprise of Jehodia are mouldering in the ancient bookcases of Oxford and Cambridge. While Sherlock was thus fiercely attacked by his old friends, he was not left unmolested by his old enemies. Some vehement Whigs, amongst whom Julian Johnson was conspicuous, declared that Jacobitism itself was respectable when compared with the vile doctrine which had been discovered in the Convocation Book. That passive obedience was due to kings was doubtless an absurd and pernicious notion, yet it was impossible not to respect the consistency and fortitude of men who thought themselves bound to bear true allegiance at all hazards to an unfortunate, a deposed, and exiled oppressor. But the theory which Sherlock had learnt from overall was unmixed baseness and wickedness. A cause was to be abandoned, not because it was unjust, but because it was unprosperous. Whether James had been a tyrant or had been the father of his people was quite immaterial. If he had won the Battle of the Boyne, we should have been bound as Christians to be his slaves. He had lost it, and we were bound as Christians to be his foes. Other Whigs congratulated the proselyte on having come, by whatever road, to the right practical conclusion, but could not refrain from sneering at the history which he gave of his conversion. He was, they said, a man of eminent learning and abilities. He had studied the question of allegiance long and deeply. He had written much about it. Several months had been allowed to him for reading, prayer and reflection before he incurred suspension, several months more before he incurred deprivation. He had formed an opinion for which he had declared himself ready to suffer martyrdom. He had taught that opinion to others, and he had then changed their opinion solely because he discovered that it had been, not refuted, but dogmatically pronounced erroneous by the two convocations more than eighty years before. Surely this was to renounce all liberty of private judgment, and to ascribe to the synods of Canterbury and York an infallibility which the Church of England had declared that even ecumenic councils could not justly claim. If, it was sarcastically said, all our notions of right and wrong, in matters of vital importance to the well-being of society, are to be suddenly altered by a few lines of manuscript found in the corner of the library at Lambeth, it is surely much to be wished for the peace of mind of humble Christians that all the documents to which this sort of authority belongs should be rummaged out and sent to the press as soon as possible. For unless this be done, we may all, like the doctor when he refused the oath last year, be committing sins in the full persuasion that we are discharging duties. In truth, it is not easy to believe that the convocation book furnished Sherlock with anything more than a pretext for doing what he had made his mind to do. The united force of reason and interest had doubtless convinced him that his passions and prejudices had led him to a great error. That error he determined to recant, and it cost him less to say that his opinion had been changed by newly discovered evidence 
than that he had formed a wrong judgment with all the materials for the forming of a right judgment before him. The popular belief was that his retraction was the effect of the tears, explanations, and reproaches of his wife. The lady's spirit was high, her authority in the family was great, and she cared much more about her house and her carriage, the plenty of her table, and the prospects of her children, than about the patriarchal origin of government, or the meaning of the word abdication. She had, it was asserted, given her husband no peace by day or night until he had got over his scruples. In letters, fables, songs, dialogues without number, her powers of seduction and intimidation were malignantly extolled. She was Xanthippe, pouring water on the head of Socrates. She was Delilah shearing Samson. She was Eve forcing the forbidden fruit into Adam's mouth. She was Job's wife, imploring her ruined lord, who sat scraping himself among the ashes, not to curse and die, but to swear and live. While the ballad-makers celebrated the victory of Mrs. Sherlock, another class of assailants fell on the theological reputation of her spouse. Till he took the oaths, he had always been considered as the most orthodox of divines. But the captitious and malignant criticism to which his writings were now subjected would have found heresy in the Sermon on the Mount, and he, unfortunately, was rash enough to publish at the very moment when the outcry against his political tergiversation was loudest, his thoughts on the mystery of the Trinity. It is probable that at another time his work would have been hailed by good churchmen as a triumphant answer to the Socinians and Sabellians. But unhappily in his zeal against Socinians and Sabellians, he used expressions which might be construed into tritheism. Candid judges would have remembered that the true path was closely pressed on the right and the left by error, and that it was scarcely possible to keep far enough from danger on one side without going very close to danger on the other. But candid judges Sherlock was not likely to find among the Jacobites. His old allies affirmed that he had incurred all those fearful penalties denounced in the Athanasian Creed against those who divide the substance. Bulky quartos were written to prove that he had held the existence of three distinct deities, and some facetious malcontents, who troubled themselves very little about the Catholic verity, amused the town by lampoons in English and Latin on his heterodoxy. We, said one of these jesters, plight our faith to one king, and call one god to attest our promise. We cannot think it strange that there should be more than one king to whom the doctor has sworn allegiance when we consider the doctor has more gods than one to swear by. Sherlock would perhaps have doubted whether the government to which he had submitted was entitled to be called the settled government, if he had known all the dangers by which it was threatened. Scarcely had Preston's plot been detected when a new plot of a very different kind was formed in the camp, in the navy, in the treasury, in the very bed-camber of the king. This mystery of iniquity has, through five generations, been gradually unveiling. But it is not yet entirely unveiled. Some parts which are still obscure may possibly, by the discovery of letters or diaries now reposing under the dust of a century and a half, be made clear to our posterity. The materials, however, which are at present accessible, are sufficient for the construction of a narrative not to be read without shame and loathing.
We have seen that, in the spring of 1690, Shrewsbury, irritated by finding his counsels rejected, and those of his Tory rivals followed, suffered himself in a fatal hour to be drawn into a correspondence with the banished family. We have seen also by what cruel sufferings of body and mind he expiated his fault. Tortured by remorse, and by disease the effect of remorse, he had quitted the court, but he had left behind him men whose principles were not less lax than his, and whose hearts were far harder and colder. Early in 1691, some of these men began to hold secret communication with Saint-Germain. Wicked and base as their conduct was, there was in it nothing surprising. They did after their kind. The times were troubled. A thick cloud was upon the future. The most sagacious and experienced politician could not see with any clearness three months before him. To a man of virtue and honour, indeed, this mattered little. His uncertainty as to what the morrow might bring forth might make him anxious, but could not make him perfidious. Though left in utter darkness as to what concerned his interests, he had the sure guidance of his principles. But, unhappily, men of virtue and honour were not numerous among the courtiers of that age. Whitehall had been, during thirty years, a seminary of every public and private vice, and swarmed with low-minded, double-dealing, self-seeking politicians. These politicians now acted as was natural that men profoundly immoral should act in a crisis of which none could predict the issue. Some of them might have had a slight predilection for William, others a slight predilection for James, but it was not by any such predilection that the conduct of any of the breed was guided. If it had seemed certain that William would stand, they would have all been for William. If it had seemed certain that James would be restored, they would all have been for James. But what was to be done when the chances appeared to be almost exactly balanced? There were honest men of one party who could have answered, to stand by the true king and the true church, and if necessary to die for them, like Lord. There were honest men of the other party who would have answered, to stand by the liberties of England and the Protestant religion, and if necessary to die for them, like Sydney. But such consistency was unintelligible to many of the noble and the powerful. Their object was to be safe in every event. They therefore openly took the oath of allegiance to one king, and obtaining commissions, patents of peerage, pensions, grants of crown land under the seal of William, and they had in their secret drawers promises of pardon in the handwriting of James. Among those who were guilty of this wickedness, three men stand pre-eminent, Russell, Godolphin, and Marlborough. No three men could be in head and heart more unlike to one another, and the peculiar qualities of each gave a peculiar character to his villainy. The treason of Russell is to be attributed partly to factitiousness. The treason of Godolphin is to be attributed altogether to timidity. The treason of Marlborough was the treason of a man of great genius and boundless ambition. It may be thought strange that Russell should have been out of humour. He had just accepted the command of the United Naval Forces of England and Holland, with the rank of Admiral of the Fleet. He was Treasurer of the Navy. He had a pension of £3,000 a year. Crown property net charing cost to the value of £18,000 had been bestowed on him. His indirect gains must have been immense, but he was still dissatisfied. In truth, with undaunted carriage, 
with considerable talents for both for war and for administration, and with a certain public spirit which showed itself by glimpses even in the very worst parts of his life, he was emphatically a bad man, insolent, malignant, greedy, faithless. He conceived that the great services which he had performed at the time of the revolution had not been adequately rewarded. Everything that was given to others seemed to him to be pillaged from himself. A letter is still extant which he wrote to William about this time. It is made up of boasts, reproaches, and sneers. The Admiral, with ironical professions of humility and loyalty, begins by asking permission to put his wrongs on paper, because his bashfulness would not suffer him to explain himself by words of mouth. His grievances were intolerable. Other people got grants of royal domains, but he could get scarcely anything. Other people could provide for their dependents, but his recommendations were uniformly disregarded. The income which he derived from the royal favour might seem large, but he had poor relations, and the government, instead of doing its duty by them, had most unhandsomely left them to his care. He had a sister who ought to have a pension, for without one she could not give portions to her daughters. He had a brother, who for want of a place had been reduced to the melancholy necessity of marrying an old woman for her money. Russell proceeded to complain bitterly that the Whigs were neglected, that the revolution had aggrandized and enriched men who had made the greatest efforts to avert it. And there is reason to believe that this complaint came from his heart for next to his own interests those of his party were dearest to him. Even when he was most inclined to become a Jacobite, he never had the smallest disposition to become a Tory. In the temper which this letter indicates, he readily listened to the suggestions of David Lloyd, one of the ablest and most active emissaries who at this time were constantly plying between France and England. Lloyd conveyed to James assurances that Russell would, when a favourable opportunity should present itself, try to effect by means of the fleet what Monk had effected in the preceding generation by means of the army. To what extent these assurances were sincere was a question about which men who knew Russell well, and who were minutely informed as to his conduct, were in doubt. It seems probable that during many months he did not know his own mind. His interest was to stand well as long as possible with both kings. His irritable and imperious nature was constantly impelling him to quarrel with both. His spleen was excited one week by a dry answer from William, and the next week by an absurd proclamation from James. Fortunately, the most important day of his life, the day from which all his subsequent years took their colour, found him out of temper with the banished king. Godolphin had not, and did not pretend to have, any cause of complaint against the government which he served. He was first Commissioner of the Treasury. He had been protected, trusted, caressed. Indeed, the favour shown to him had excited many murmurs. Was it fitting, the Whigs had indignantly asked, that a man who had been high in office for the whole of the late reign, who had promised to vote for the indulgence, who had sat in the Privy Council with a Jesuit, who had sat at the board of treasury with two papists, who had attended an idolatrous to her altar, should be among the chief ministers of a prince whose title to the throne was derived from the Declaration of Rights. But on William this clamour had produced no effect, and none of his English servants seemed to have had at this time a larger share of his confidence than Godolphin. 
End of section 5